Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Carla Hayden, the CEO, and we're delighted to welcome you here for another edition of our Shapiro Lecture Series. Uh, Carla Hayden, and this is another part of our uh, Gloria Shapiro Lecture Series, and it was made possible by a very generous bequest from Gloria Shapiro's estate. Tonight, we're delighted to have with us as our special guest, the author and Harvard professor, Elisa New. I'm really looking forward to hear her uh, read and discuss her new book, Jacob's Cane, about her family's rich and moving history from Lithuania to Baltimore. And to introduce our special guest tonight, is another supporter of the Pratt Library and especially tonight's event. So please welcome Senior Vice President of the Mannequin Company, Mr. Robert Mannequin. She's my cousin. Um, This is going to be a a delightful evening and I'm glad that everybody is here to share it. Um, This is a Other than the fact that it's a story of our family, it's a story of a lot of families, and it's a story of Baltimore, and it's a story of of economic development. Uh, Lisa is an English professor at Harvard. She got her Ph.D. at Columbia. She went undergraduate at Brandeis University. I've learned all this stuff since November 24th. She's a delightful, wonderful person, and I'm looking forward to her remarks, as I'm sure everybody else is. And for those who haven't bought the book, I urge you to get the book. I've only bought 47 copies so far and still counting. <laughs> Dr. New. Thank you so much, Bob, and thank you all uh, so much for coming. About 10 years ago, I was sitting in the living room of a cousin, and we were having brunch. We were having bagels and locks. And we were making conversation. Um, I was trying to get my cousin Buddy and his wife Myra, but especially Buddy, to tell me about the old days of fabric shrinking in Baltimore. I was, as a scholar of American literature and culture, I was really interested in, um, in Baltimore and especially interested in what I dimly understood had been a bygone um, great industrial age. Now, Buddy and Myra, as um, un- like most of us, were modest or reluctant to discuss dry historical topics, and so I had to press past discussion about the hors d'oeuvres at the bat mitzvah of the week before, this kind of thing and how it was a shame that X hadn't gotten remarried and Y was getting so fat. It was, you know, there was a lot of that kind of conversation and I find it as interesting as, the, uh, as anybody. But Buddy was getting older and I knew that he was really the last link to a line of shrinkers, as we call them, that had begun with my great-grandfather, Jacob Levy. And so I persisted, and I said to, um, I kept asking Buddy, tell me about the old days on Redwood Street. Tell me about when you moved to 
Lexington Street? Was it near Lexington Market? Where did the cloth come from? How were the machines arranged? Was there hot water shrinking on one floor, cold water on another? Um, Buddy looked somewhat mystified by all of this. And finally, kind of out of nowhere, he said to me, you know, I have it. I have that, that cane, your great-grandfather Jacob's cane, if you ever want to see it. It's, uh, it's in my den. And we were then sitting in his daughter's, um, his daughter's living room having brunch. I taught then at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, but I was intrigued uh, about this cane he had just described, and I resolved to come back to Baltimore soon uh, to see it. Now, the cane in question is one, and you can see it today on the cover of this book, the cane in question is one I had seen many times before in heirloom family photographs. And I had seen this cane in photographs uh, uh, in, housed in albums in Baltimore, and I had seen it uh, in various albums in Philadelphia. I had seen it also in Israel, where I had, uh, at the bidding of elderly relatives, had gone to visit some uh, other relatives who had moved to Israel, and I had seen this picture as well in London. Uh, The picture uh, represented my great-grandfather. I knew this much. It represented my great-grandfather in 1928 when he had gone to visit people, my aunts, his daughters, their names Jean, Myrtle, and Fanny, uh, when he had gone to visit the people they called the European relatives. When, as a child, I would ask, who were these European relatives and where did he go to visit them, I got various answers. One of my aunts, um, the the best informed, admittedly, uh, would say, uh, but mispronouncing the name of a city I thought I knew, she would say, he came from Riga. We were from Riga. Now, <laughs> and the, just the mispronunciation of this, of this city named Riga gave me pause. My other aunt, her sister, my Aunt Myrtle, would say, and she based her account on a real document, a document that hung in the offices of the family shrinking later synthetics processing business, she would say, no, we hadn't come from Riga, although she wouldn't dispute with her sister. She would just give a completely different, it was an answer in another module because the sisters tried not to dispute about such minor things as facts. Um, it would, might get in the way of relationships. Um, she would say, No, we were from Austria. And the third sister, my Aunt Fanny, literally said once, I will, I remember it, and Aunt Fanny was the kind of person who didn't, really didn't like disputes to come between loving uh, family members. My Aunt Fanny would say, we were from Riga in Austria. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I know... 
I know today, you know, and I knew even then that Riga was not in Riga. The city of Riga, Latvian city of Riga, was not in Austria. And as I say in the book, it's as unlikely as if, say, Portland, Maine were transported to the shores of Lake Michigan and turned up as Chicago, right? Riga becoming... um, Austria, or even Vienna, as my aunts would then continue. Um, So just where my great-grandfather had gone in 1928 um, was a mystery. And the picture that I've uh, described uh, seeing the cane in was was one that had other alluring associations for me. The picture showed, this heirloom family photograph, showed my great-grandfather sitting amid, as I've said, a a large group of people my aunts called the European relatives. Now, one could tell that they were European from the beard. One of them, I guess we would say, sported. Um, He had one of those divided white beards. You know those beards? And... Lots of different hair fashions, facial hair fashions, have come and gone in America, but not that one, right? That was a purely European uh, style of wearing a beard. So one could tell that this was a European family. I had I had observed over the years a um, a glossy, genteel, and prosperous look to these uh, assembled family members. I remembered, and it had really stuck in my mind, that a woman sitting in the front row of the picture was wearing very glossy, silk-looking stockings and satin pumps. I noticed that the little girls posing had enormous bows in their hair, uh, and that a row of men standing behind the patriarch with the divided beard uh, were wearing um, crisp looking uh, looking suits. And so there was a, uh, a prosperousness about uh, the picture and the people in it that interested me. Of course, also, as I grew older, uh, this picture not only compelled my interest but worried me since I knew it had been taken in 1928 and I uh, knew more and more of what hap- had happened Um, in Europe in 1941. And so I wondered what had happened to these 20 or so people among whom my great-grandfather sat holding this walking stick. That wasn't the only thing about this photograph that interested me, however, since I also knew that in that same year, 1928, My great-grandfather had gone from his visit to the European relatives, wherever it was they were, um, to London, there to visit with his three sons and two grandsons who had left, breaking his heart, my aunts would remind me, who had left in order to join the magnificent tobacco concern that had been begun, that had been um, started, and was now um, uh, running in magnificent, as I said, fashion. Um, had been started by 
a man who had been my great-grandfather's friend, uh, had engineered, as our relatives said, various marriages with our family, and then had become his bitter enemy. Um, I knew that, I, I, I didn't know, and to this day, I don't know what words my great-grandfather may have exchanged with his sons and grandsons who had left him in Baltimore, had journeyed to London, had eventually taken the name Bernard Barron, leaving their father's name, abandoning their father's name, and taking another man's names. They are buried to this day in the tomb with this other uh, man in a North London ceremony, uh, uh, sorry, cemetery. I don't to this day know what words they exchanged, but I do know that my great-grandfather went to visit these sons and grandsons despite his broken heart. I do know as well, uh, since it was repeated to me many times over the years, that he cursed these sons. And the curse was, you can probably guess, it sounds like a curse. (laughs) It sounds like a father's curse. The curse was, may you never have sons. And the funny thing is, these sons never did. They never had any sons. So, There I am, three weeks later. I've journeyed to Baltimore. I'm now standing in Buddy's living room, and he puts this cane in my hands. Oh, uh, I need to add one thing. I've brought my daughter, Yael, then 12 years old, three months shy of her bat mitzvah, with me. I've brought her with me to see the cane. And Buddy puts this cane in my hands. And I, with it resting on my palms, I say in the book, and it's a little grandiose, but it's in fact true, sometimes grandiose things are, that I felt the plates of history shift beneath my feet. The object in my hands was beautiful. It was as eloquent looking an object as I had ever seen. Uh, It reminded me on the one hand of the kind of thing a gentleman would take to the opera, right? It was ebony, dead black ebony, um, as glossy looking as, you know, 80 years since its bestowing as uh, perhaps it had ever been. It looked that way, showed no wear. dead black ebony, looked like it had a Henry Higgins sort of look. And it looked also to me black, covered with metalwork in uh, elaborate Baroque scrolls. It looked also like a mezuzah. So if you can imagine the combination of an opera, of a cane to the opera, a metropolitan object of urbane sophistication and a mezuzah, That's how the cane looked to me. It, uh, as I looked at it close, more closely, and I turned it in the light, I could see that it was not only eloquent uh, in declaring its craftsmanship, in declaring the sophistication, perhaps, of the person who bestowed it and uh, carried it, but that it was also covered with writing. Um, Each uh, 
brother, my great grandfather, uh, had been a, uh, I, I knew from the heirloom photograph was the brother of somebody, this guy sitting with the beard. And I knew he had another brother who had come to America. And I had heard in fact, in Israel of yet another brother still. And I saw on the cane immediately that there were four elaborate scrolls of metalwork and that these represented the four brothers. I saw too that at the top of the cane, just under the, the bent crook, was a kind of silver cuff of metal. And on that broad cuff, again, in beautifully crafted italics and inscription, and I noticed that that inscription was in German. That, uh, a telling fact. Looking uh, more closely yet at the cane, I could see that underneath each scroll of metalwork was a small plate. And on that plate, the name of a place. Austria was not one of <laughs> the names. Uh, instead, although the Austria, and you may have been thinking this as I spoke, the fact that the that the that this inscription was in German gave me gave me pause. Instead, uh, the names on the cane were as follows: at the top, the first name uh, of a town listed was Riga, uh, a Baltic city in Latvia. The second name on the cane was Let's see how you would pronounce this. S-I-A-U, S-I-A-U-I-L-I-A-I. Try that. Well, I thought it was something like schwall or something like that, and it turns out that this, um, these, this odd um, combination of letters represents the town that some Jews call Shavli, and some Jews, your Jews, call it Shavli, and other Jews call Shavl, and the Jews who call it Shavl get upset when, you, when I say in a, on a rostrum like this, Shavli, they say, no, 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 and sometimes they'll even stand up and say, no, no, not Shavli, Shavl. The Germans called it Shaolin, the uh, Poles, had uh, their way both of pronouncing it and spelling it. When I wanted, I'm sorry to tell you that when I wanted to locate this town, the fastest way to find it was looking on an atlas of the Holocaust and then moving on from there. Uh, but in any case, uh, that was after uh, I had uh, returned home with Yael. The first name was Riga, the second name was Razani, and the third, I'm sorry, the second name was Shavli or Shaolin or Shavel or whatever this town's, uh, however you pronounce this town's name, and the third was a place called Razani. I went home, uh, looked these towns up first on a map of the Holocaust, then on a, uh, on a world atlas, saw how close together they were, uh, 
realized that my daughter's bat mitzvah was just a few months away and that Harvard gave me, oh, I'm sorry, not Harvard, Harvard later gave me, that Penn gave me research money <laughs> that I could use for just such a purpose as a wild goose chase into the Baltics uh, to discover whatever I might. And it's, it's a funny thing about universities and their research money. Um, if, you, if you write a, a paragraph to them every year or so and you say, I want to go someplace. I'm not sure what I'll find there. It will never make any money. Um, I'm not sure um, really of much of anything. They will tend to say, perfect. Give you exactly. If you say, I have a project I think will be of great interest to the world in my field, that usually doesn't fly. That sounds too commercial. Um, Anyway, I had this research money. I used it, uh, and I took my daughter, uh, to the Baltics for the first time. Following, as you might imagine, the itinerary described down the stock of that cane, going first to Riga, then to the town of Shavli, and eventually to the town of Rosani. But then, too, over the next several years, journeying from these Baltic places to London, where my great-grandfather, Jacob's friend, then enemy, Bernard Barron, had begun this magnificent tobacco enterprise um, that um, was really fabled in my family uh, and uh, that proved so alluring my great-grandfather's sons could um, could not stay away. And then... Um, back to Baltimore, the town where I knew somehow my great-grandfather Jacob, a shrinker, and his friend, once friend, then enemy, Bernard Barron, had shared something important. Eventually, they fought over sons, but In the beginning, I suspected a vision of human betterment had inspired both of them to become socialist inventors (laughs) or uh, leftist entrepreneurs, a category I had not been aware existed until I began to research the two of them. Uh, As I began to come to... Baltimore, to the Enoch Pratt Library, to the Jewish Museum of Maryland, to the Maryland Historical Society, as I began to review and uh, assimilate the um, information uh, and the stories I heard in the Baltics and then in London, I came to understand a particular kind of idealism that throve, that um, caught fire in the hearts of um, immigrants, uh, many of whom had come from uh, what I'd like to call here wider Germany. That is to say, not the Germany confined within its geographical borders that we think of as Germany today, 
but that whole world to which German culture, uh, to which what Jews call the Haskalah, the spirit of emancipation, had spread. And I came eventually to be, and my researchers came to concentrate on just what vision of, and here are some of the words they used, just what vision of civilization, just what vision of liberal citizenship these men uh, so cherished in their hearts. Jacob Levy, my great-grandfather, so cherishing it that he became, in 1914, Baltimore's, city of Baltimore's, socialist candidate for Congress. Didn't do badly either. Um, It was, of course, in the Enoch Pratt where I was able to see his ballots, his speeches, the platform of the Socialist Party, and to come to understand what it was that he... Uh, that he believed in. My great-grandfather, struggling for um, uh, a a better world as a bourgeois-seeming shrinker, that too was a puzzle, um, was even as he he grew estranged from his uh, once friend, then enemy, Bernard Barron, um, uh, still... Uh, passionately devoting himself to really the same dream that Barron pursued. Barron, and here's here's the, I think, most wild part of my story, and I'm going to read a little bit um, that's uh, from this part of the story in a minute. Barron um, believed, and the world believed with him, that by inventing a cigarette machine, we don't think of cigarettes as contributing to human betterment anymore. And we know, in fact, that cigarettes do not contribute to human betterment. Um, But in the 1880s, uh, 30 years after, 20 20 years after the end of the Civil War and the end of a a tobacco industry that had been run pretty much by, uh, through slave labor, um, the cigar roller and the cigarette roller uh, came to represent the most immiserated of the American worker. If any of uh, the uh, most immiserated kind of American worker, if any of you have ever read or even looked at the wonderful pictures in Jacob Reese's How the Other Half Lives, he, des- he devotes a whole chapter to the cigar rollers, to families living in. Uh, one-room apartments they rent from the the tobacco importer, paying their rent by rolling mom, dad, and the kids 3,000 cigars a week. It's a lot of cigars. Now imagine the environment uh, in which mom, dad, and the kids work. Um, it's one room. The particulates... Right, the tobacco is everywhere in the air and being inhaled by everyone as they sleep. The labor of rolling uh, cigars or cigarettes has given father 
probably a, uh, a case of bad case of what we would now call carpal tunnel <laughs> or repetitive motion um, disease. And what's more, the scourge of the city's tuberculosis um, is being spread um, through the transmit, through spittle that um, cigar rollers pressed to roll 3,000 a, uh, a week are using to seal their wrappers, right, even though they're warned not to. So the cigar roller uh, has come to represent, and for any of you who have read histories of Samuel Gompers or his biography or know anything about him, the cigar roller has come to represent um, the American worker to whom some relief must come. And the world, in fact, the world worker to whom some relief uh, must come. And all over America... Um, the cry is going up for a machine <laughs> to roll uh, cigars and cigarettes and so to improve the, uh, the lives of this most immiserated of workers. Well, the inventor uh, of the only, it turns out, here, this is the masterpiece theater um, part of my story, the inventor of the only machine that can compete with the machine that's owned by, by the guy who called himself Big Buck Duke, right, of North Carolina, the only machine that can compete with the Bonsack machine to which Duke owns the rights is a machine invented in Baltimore by my great-uncle Baron. Um, Invented, I surmise, during years when he was becoming intimate with my great-grandfather, who was also inventing machines for the shrinking, uh, the hot water shrinking and the cold water shrinking of cloth. My great-uncle Baron takes this machine, and at just the moment when Duke is trying to take over, trying to create a worldwide tobacco monopoly, trying to um, undersell uh, the Britons, killing off players' tobacco and all of the other uh, old, estimable uh, English brands. Bernard Barron comes roaring into New York with a cigarette machine that works as well, and he is ready to deal. And he sells the machine, and the, the little shelf you see in business libraries uh, you know, talks about this little Jew from Baltimore, and they tend to, especially the older the the older the books, the more they like that quaintness of that little Jew, the little man of Hebrew extraction, they'll call him, uh, from Baltimore, who allows the uh, the the Brits their independence from American um, f from American tobacco tyranny. Bernard Barron then I'm giving you the prehistory of the 1928 trip, and then I'm going to read a little bit and then take questions. Um, Bernard Barron uh, sells the machine in the late 1890s uh, leaves and leaves Baltimore. Uh, he buys, just one more little um, literary detail, he buys a blend of tobacco that's being sold in... London, being sold in a famous, and I, I gather, um, a store with cachet. 
Uh, the store is called Carreras. It's on Oxford Street. It's frequented by such worthies as Lord Craven uh, and even by J.M. Barry, who's written Peter Pan and is the toast of London. Bernard Barron buys a, uh, a blend of tobacco that's the favorite blend of gentlemen from the 1850s on. And he begins using his uh, mechanized, uh, his, his new technology that protects workers' lungs and protects them from particulates and keeps their uh, hands from um, locking into painful spasm. He begins to roll this blend, which is now no longer sold in America, but sold at my own vacation spot in Jamaica. So <laughs> I bought a pack so I could bring it on the lecture tour. It's sold, any of you, it's sold in Canada, it's sold in, it's still pretty good, I guess, if you're a smoker. Um, this pack is getting stale. It's not open, you see. I don't believe in smoking. I know it's bad for you. Uh, anyway, Bernard Barron begins to roll this alluring blend to which J.M. Barry lends his own support, participating eagerly in the advertising, and before long, uh, he's selling lots and lots and lots of cigarettes all over the world. His own ability to manage this growing empire um, really running away from him. He only has one son, and maybe he knew that that son would die only two years after he died himself, and that he needed a succession plan. Um, I'll never really know, um, but uh, he, uh, through the 1920s, attracted my, uh, my great-grandfather's uh, sons, brought them across the ocean, where they uh, enjoyed what I call my masterpiece theater uh, part of the story. My great-uncle Eddie even being knighted um, during... Knighted? Jews? Our family knighted? Uh, even being knighted um, during the Second World War. So uh, I've, given you, uh, I've given you the flavor of, uh, of some of the story anyway. What I haven't said much of anything about, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about this after if you like... I haven't said anything about the Baltic world um, from which Jacob and Bernard Barron came. Um, the, it's, uh, it's both a beautiful story I have to tell about that world and a sad story. And a, uh, it's a world that um, I was incredibly lucky to get to know with first my 12-year-old daughter and then my maturing daughter at my side so that on the last trip I took to the Baltics, um, my last research trip, by that time my daughter Yael had, I don't know how much credit I get to take for this, um, had decided to study Russian at Harvard and had become a Slavic major and was a really good <laughs> Russian speaker. And so by that time, she was mature enough to act as my translator. Uh, and at that point, she becomes part of the story as well. Uh, I thought I would just read to you just a little bit from the book and then open things up to questions. And I thought I would read from um, a chapter I call The Free Hanseatic City of now pronouncing this, the name of the city the way my aunts did. 
the free Hanseatic attic city of Baltimore, because <laughs> that's how they said it. They didn't want, and I, I guess, I surmise, I judge, I that they that Balmer that the 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 local pronunciation sounded to them what they would have called too gentile, uh, maybe too southern, maybe um, insufficiently. Um, elegant, but they were careful and scrupulous to pronounce every single syllable, consonant, vowel, and then to add some, right? So, Baltimore, they, you know, there's a very, very, there are many vowels between the M and the, uh, and the R. Um, I'm going to, um, just read a little bit from a, a part of this chapter where I t- try to describe the Germanness of Baltimore in the 1880s. Um, a Germanness that um, was a, a kind of solvent for actually for ethnic or national difference. So if you spoke German, uh, you might be able to do business with people, other people who spoke German. Um, whom you might otherwise um, not have um, fraternized with. I say the the Hanseatic part, I told you I, the chapter is called The Free Hanseatic City of Baltimore. Um, I refer there to the medieval Hanseatic League. Any of you know about the Hanseatic? Some of you know about the Hanseatic League. Some of you know, do not know about the Hanseatic League. The Hanseatic League was an association of cities established in the Middle Ages. Um, some of the key cities were Bremen, Lübeck, Hamburg. Uh, and, but this, this association of cities included cities like what we would call Gdansk or Danzig, included cities along the Baltic coast like Königsberg, like Riga, like Memel, or what's called now called Klaipeda. Um, this association of German cities permitted free trade between these cities without the interference or the duties, the pesky business-inhibiting duties of the, all the local princes and principalities, uh, so that these um, these trading cities established themselves as in a, a, a special kind of partnership with each other. And when explorations began to include what was called the New World in the greater European economy, um, one city, one special city was added to they were it was okay it was never technically a Hansa city, but Baltimore became one of those ports uh, as visited as regularly uh, and in as active communication with Bremen, Hamburg, Lubeck, Riga as any of the other cities. Why did it become so important? Well, in part because tobacco would leave Baltimore that commodity everyone wanted, that commodity William Byrd of Virginia called a bewitching vegetable. Tobacco would leave America, and on the return trip, immigrants would come back. So tobacco would go, especially after the Revolutionary War when George Washington no longer wanted the English crown to benefit at all from uh, American tobacco. They had 
had a monopoly for all those years. Now tobacco was going to Germany um, and immigrants coming. So I'm just going to read a little bit from a chapter, the chapter called The Free Hanseatic City of Baltimore. It cannot be literally true that 19th century Baltimore gave the Hansa its last hurrah, but to many of German extraction in Baltimore, it seemed that way. This protean, as opposed to purist Germanness, so detachable from national identity and volkish rootedness, struck strong roots in Baltimore, and its preservation carried no threat to ardent American patriotism, nor to what was just as common, ardent love for the adopted city of Baltimore. This Germanist embraced English as the language of the home and coined key terms for its liberation from the parochial or ancien regime. Liberal was one of these terms, enlightened was another. Business in 19th century Baltimore could be ecumenical. At the Germania Club, it was hardly worth remarking that some among the smokers had learned Polish or Latvian from their mothers, or that some mixed Hungarian loanwords with their German. In Baltimore, for those properly liberal, neither country nor ethnic origin outweighed the bond of the common language. Spoken by Baltimore's rising business class, German carried with it kultur, the common love of music, reading, and the edifying lecture. Nor did religious affiliation present insuperable barriers. In 1869, the bride of Rabbi Benjamin Jold wrote to her mother, We have made many friends, Jew and Gentile, German and American. Henrietta bids her mother imagine that her husband, the rabbi, not only delivered a speech in English on the subject of charity before an American Gentile audience in the Masonic Hall in Lynchburg, Virginia, but that his speech was also printed in all the English-language newspapers. Even more striking than the ecumenism of the 1880s, even more striking examples of the uh, ecumenism of the 1880s are provided by H.L. Mencken, who recounts that in his gymnasium, the famous German-English Knapp School, there was no enmity between the enmity between the chosen and the goyim in the old professor's establishment, and no sense of difference in the treatment of them. In the 1880s, Mencken notes, there was still a class in Hebrew in which he himself sat long enough to learn the Hebrew alphabet. True, Professor Knapp might discharge his own Prussian spleen by bursting into a classroom that was disorderly to denounce it as a Judenschul, and yet, Mencken recalls, the Prussian schoolmaster was also fond of using a number of Hebrew loanwords, Tokus, backside, Schlemiel, oaf, kosher, clean, and meshuga, crazy. Not to be outdone in liberality, Mencken points out that the Jewish students helped themselves to the whole sideboard, clean and unclean. About the pork-eating habits of his Jewish schoolmates, Mencken writes, I must add in sorrow that the Jews at Naps were unanimously chazerfressers. 
Mencken's Yiddish usage recalls, reveals how easily, how promiscuously Germans of all kinds mixed in 1880s Baltimore. I say this knowing that my aunts would have found such mixing quite unfortunate. As well as I can remember Aunt Fanny's response to the question of whether she remembered any Yiddish, it was to be offended that I could picture her so balmer. She thought of Yiddish as an earthy, casual language spoken by persons of haphazard upbringing. For Jews who knew no better, Yiddish was fine. But the language of Baltimore Jews who hailed from Austria was naturally English. And if Aunt Fanny had looked mournful at my lack of understanding, Aunt Jean did not scruple to hide her strong indignation. Did I imagine, her stern look challenged me, that her brothers, Eddie, Paul, and Theo, and then her sons, Jerry and Earl, would have been invited to join Uncle Baron in London to inherit what he had built had they not had the proper upbringing, had not come from the finest sort of Jewish home, not a Yiddish speaking, but a nice home, full of her father's books with, fo- with proper furnishings and children brought up carefully to know what was what. Admittedly, her father Jacob had regarded his son's name change from Levy to Baron their employment change from cloth shrinking to tobacco, and their departure from the country of their birth, America, to England as a betrayal. The subsequent departure of his grandsons, her sons, he also regarded as a knife thrust at his heart. Jean herself chose to see the transfer of the Levy men from Baltimore to London as destiny. What my Aunt Jean did not tell me and what did I, I did not begin to understand until I followed Jacob's cane and let history guide me back to Baltimore, is that these seeds had been planted well before either her formidable father or good Uncle Baron had ever sailed into Chesapeake Bay. Generations before they came to the bay, a full century before George Washington established the trade relations with Germany that would crowd the shipping lanes, these seeds were planted. Long before Bernard Barron struck wealth from his invention so prodigious, so marvelously productive of pleasure and well-being, young men had been reaping rewards in London that had sprouted from seedlings on the Chesapeake. Like my great uncles, like Uncle Barron himself, what seeded all their fortunes was tobacco. I'm just, I'll read a teeny bit more Just a little, little bit more. I'm going to read now from... I'm just going to read a little bit more. Um, And this is based on... This was based on some of... uh, Some experiences in the archive that were so powerful. um, I would go back to visit, just as I was telling some of you a little earlier... I, I would come to the Enoch Pratt as I was writing this book and would make my way to the Maryland room and I would read city directories, looking up the family names, following them from address to address. And I would similarly go to YIVO, which is the greatest in New York, the greatest library where they collect the, the um, 
papers of the Jews of Eastern Europe, I would go there in order to read the purple, faded carbons that had come from my great-uncle Max's pen um, that I knew he had once touched. Um, I eventually began to make um, pilgrimages to... I wished I actually would have preferred to have come to the Enoch Pratt for these, but I would make pilgrimages to Harvard's Baker Library, um, where Harvard collects, along with the papers of the, the Medicis, like you want Lorenzo de Medici, you want to read what he had on his mind, you can go to Harvard. And you can also go to Harvard to read what turned out to be amazingly illuminating narratives of American business in the 19th century. The narratives that are written by the Dunn's credit inspectors. So if your family had a business large enough that they sometimes got credit, if they just had a push cart, forget it. You're not going to find anything in the Dunn's credit registers about them. But if they needed credit... Uh, and if they were from any of the many, many cities that kept these registers in sufficiently fine condition to eventually ship them to Harvard, you can go to Harvard and you can read complete narratives written by a human being who usually has a kind of personality and a point of view about a particular businessman. And I, to my joy... Uh, discovered that Bernard Barron, as he began to build his cigarette uh, business out from out of a cigar business in Baltimore, had been reviewed every single year by Dunn's um, credit inspectors. And it was only when I read these narratives that he began to become a person to me. Um, I uh, And that I began to follow him to other places. Um, began to, he, he was a person sufficiently celebrated and famous in London and is still known to some that there are plenty of public sources, um, disc- but they're very uh, hagiographic. They, they worship him as a philanthropist, as a business genius, and they don't really give a sense of, of who he was as a young man. Um, even better than, uh, much better than these glowing descriptions of his character were um, such things as the Dunn's credit reports. And Dunn's led me also to other libraries where I could learn um, small things about him. So I'm just going to read just a page or two about Bernard Barron as a young man. In the New York Public Library, scrolling year by year through the microfilm of the city directory, I find Uncle Barron's first actual address in America. Living on Broom Street in 1873, he is not yet Bernard Barron, but Bernhardt with a T. He lives a few streets south of his famous benchmate, uh, Samuel Gompers with a Z, occupation also listed as cigar maker, S-E-E-G-A-R maker. I surmise that as I find no trace of him in New York before this date, he probably lived for a few years in the basest poverty, flush days allowing him a flop in one of the dormitory hotels in which single men for three or four cents could buy the use of a canvas hammock. 
Later pictures of Uncle Barron tell me what he would have looked like in 1873, age 23, rolling cigars on his bench and listening to the philosophers of the 144th spin out their debates, perhaps even adding a thought of his own. From the pictures of the mustached older man, vest buttoned over his squarish torso, I summon up a solid youngster on the edge of manhood. Not tall, but robust-looking, with a strong nose, narrow nostrils, brownish hair, and dark brows. He tilts his head as he listens to the dialogue, drinks in the rhetoric. And here I'm describing the kind of scene that Samuel Gompers describes as typical of cigar workshops in New York in the 1870s, where... Um, the cigar rollers would pay someone to read to them, and what the readers usually um, offered were um, uh, Marx, Engels, La Salle, um, all of the European uh, social, social theorists. What is to be done? This is what they ask each other. What is to be done to ameliorate the suffering, the ignorance, the poor health, and the hunger of the working man? What is to be done to free the textile worker, the man in the field, the hauler, the stevedore, the grimy factory operative? What is to be done to feed his belly, to nourish his brain, to realize for him and his fellows the intrinsic dignity of the worker? Sometime in 1873 or 1874, Uncle Barron disappeared from the Broom Street address. David Jeremy, in the entry for Bernard Barron in his volume, Business Leaders of England, places him at this time in New Haven, the tobacco center of New England, selling cigars at Yale College to Yale College students. And then Jeremy has him in New York working through 1875 or 1876 for F.S. Kinney, who produced the Sweet Caporal Cigarette, the finest European-size Parparo, which is a early cigarette um, rather than a cigar, produced, and Parparos were, that, that was the idea for how you would get women, right? They were smoking them in Russia. They would wrap them in silk, and women would smoke them on the trains, um, not necessarily in the home, but in transit. They could go a little wild. Kinney would have done, uh, Kinney would have done well to hire Uncle Barron. He was among the most aggressive Americans hoping to make the cigarettes sell. A more interesting possibility, though, is that in 1875, none other than James Buchanan Duke spirited Barron away from Kinney in one of his many raids on Kinney's workforce, taking to his bosom the man who would, 20 years later, foil Duke's takeover of the European cigarette business. This would explain my Uncle Barron's claim to have spent many of his early nights in, in America in tobacco sheds, as well as his frequent reminder that between 1875 and 1895, not a year went by that he did not see for himself the cultivation, harvest, and cure of the tobacco grown in Virginia, Maryland, and the Carolinas. I'm going to skip down and just read a little bit more. In the Baker Library at Harvard University, I first see Uncle Barron in high resolution as he was when Jacob Levy first met him in Baltimore. 
the original ledgers of Dunn's Baltimore credit inspectors, now held at Baker, contain long entries on my Uncle Barron. The inspectors reported on him twice a year, noting his energy and success in building a growing tobacco concern. In careful, close handwriting, the inspectors note, November 1879, the establishment of Barron and Company cigars in Baltimore, headed by one Bernhardt, T with a T, Baron of Russian Jewish extraction, whom former employers call an honest, reliable man, prospects excellent. After the next visit, observing that Baron is said to be upright in all his transactions, the inspectors also described describe him as an active, pushing man, doing a good, cautious trade. In June 1880, his capital is estimated at three to four thousands, but a few months later, they round it off to five, and note approvingly the acquisition of a partner, one Bernhard Heinbach, who adds 12,500 to the capital. Inspectors on February 7th, 1881, report that while Barron has been burned out of his former factory space, he is insured, and that by March, with working capital of $10,000, he is moving into larger spaces on East Pratt. By 1884, encumbered by a ground rent, he has 15 or 16,000 in capital and is in good repute at his bank and works with comparatively light expenses. The handwriting of a new inspector notes the acquisition of a new investor and partner, High Krauss. I'm going I'm to stop there and only note before I open this to questions that one of the most exciting, it was just one of these moments, and there was no one to share it with. I was just here in Baltimore alone, but here I am sharing it with you. One of the most exciting nights I remember was when I saw what I thought was the answer to how Bernard Barron might have met or come to know my great-grandfather. And that came when I noticed that my great-grandfather's brother's shop was on East Pratt Street right next to Bernard Barron's uh, factory into which he had now moved. And all of a sudden, it just clicked, right? And I could see them on that street together. And I have to say that I went through the city directories many times, really, and never quite noticed. I just sort of had this vague Pratt Street idea. And then I said, oh, my gosh, that's and those are addresses. And those addresses are adjacent to each other. And then a commercial street and a neighborhood begins to materialize in my mind. You've been very patient. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you all uh, so much for coming.